we are back in Micah, Micah chapter 1. We'll be doing verses 8 through 16 this morning. And we have a very cheerful, upbeat topic this morning. You saw in your handout, Micah's Lament. And my, my outline's a little complex this morning. It's not my fault, it was Micah's. So if you don't have a handout, I still have a couple more. Uh, that'll help you keep track, and I'll be putting it up on the screen as well. But I want us to talk for a minute just about what is a lament. A lament is a term that describes the grief after death. It's used in a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. And one of the ways is it's used to describe someone who is grieving the death of a loved one. In Genesis 23, too, Abraham went out and wept for Sarah. And it's translated here as to mourn. He was in mourning for the death of his wife. It's illustrated again in Genesis 50, 1 through 4, when jo uh, Joseph is lamenting. He's mourning after the passing of his father Isaac. Uh, Genesis 50, verse 10, it says the whole country, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. To lament is to grieve, it's to mourn, and it's usually to mourn the loss of a loved one, someone that you care for deeply. The lament was a way of sharing your grief. It wasn't just a personal thing. It's not like you went home and went into your room and closed the door and pretended like nobody was around, you just wept in silence. It was a very public, and you would go to the funeral and you would lament and weep and mourn loudly with other people. And there was a whole bunch of different ways that you could share your grief with others. Sometimes they would go barefoot. They'd just take off their shoes. Men would cut their beards off. And that day that would have made you stand out. You could take off or strip off your outer garments. You could cover yourself in ashes. There's even, from pagan influences, a practice of beating your body. So you'll see where they say they, they beat their breast. People also express their grief vocally through shrills and crying. Do you remember the stories in the New Testament? Uh, Jesus goes to a funeral, and there are wailers there, and they are screaming and crying, and there's loud commotion. Uh, that happened in Luke 8 and Mark 5 with the synagogue official's daughter. They thought she was dead, and the wailers were there. But it's not just describing mourning that comes from the, uh, from the death of a loved one. It's also the mourning in the death of a, or the, the destruction of a country. When a country is going to be destroyed or has already been destroyed, there is a lament. Can anyone think of a book of the Bible where that might be relevant? Lamentations. Somebody said it. Yeah, the whole book of Lamentations is a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. Isaiah, talking about the Assyrian invasion in Isaiah 32, said, Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, and put on sackcloth on your waist. Show your mourning. Show how much this hurts. Lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel and Ezekiel 26 took up a lamentation for the nation of Tyre that was going to be destroyed. And in the end times... Israel will take up a lamentation. Anybody know why Israel is going to lament in the end times when Jesus returns? Zechariah, yes. 
And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn. They will lament for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The whole nation of Israel will weep and lament over the death of their Messiah. And in our passage this morning, Micah is also going to bring a lament. He's going to lament the coming destruction of his country, the nation of Judah. And he's going to give you three facets, three aspects, you might say, of his lament. The first aspect of the prophet's lament. The prophet's pronouncement. The prophet's pronouncement. And you find this in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. The first facet is his pronouncement. And he breaks his pronouncement up into two parts. That's why you have a handout. There are two parts to his pronouncement. The first one is his routine. This is what he's going to do. This is the routine he's going to follow. His routine. Notice in verse 8, he says, because of this, because of this refers back to the judgment that we saw last week in verses 2 through 7. It's the judgment on what country? What nation? Who remembers? Anybody remember last week? Samaria. Remember Samaria was wiped off the map, kind of like you wipe water off a table, and God removed it, and at the end of that, we saw the picture of what remained of Samaria, and there was a hill and a couple little rocks. And so part of his lament, part of his mourning, is over the fact that his, his brethren in the northern kingdom had been taken into exile, and the, that part of the nation didn't exist. But it's not just Samaria that makes him lament. If you go back up to verse 1, in verse 1, he says that this book is referring to Samaria and to Jerusalem. The whole book is going to describe what happens not only in Samaria, but also what happens in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And Micah knows what's going to happen in the southern kingdom. And because of that, he's going to lament, he's going to wail. And he illustrates it for you. Verse 8 again, notice he says, I must go barefoot and naked. I don't think barefoot needs a whole lot of explanation. The word usually refers to being stripped, and it's here referring to his feet. So to be stripped of his feet means he has no shoes on. Naked, however, does. like It's likely not the kind of naked you're thinking. Our modern term for naked means one thing. Uh, this doesn't refer to stripping off all clothing. It's not referring to nudity. It's referring to taking off your outer garments and essentially stripping down to what, what would have been the equivalent back then of your underwear. Uh, Isaiah 20, uh, starting in verse 2, he says, At that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, Notice here, it doesn't say remove your sackcloth. It says loosen. Go down and wear nothing but sackcloth, remove your belt, and remove your shoes. And by doing that, you will stand out. 
from everybody else because no one else is walking around wearing just a piece of sackcloth with no shoes on. It would be highly unusual for a mourner to literally walk around nude. Usually they go around in sackcloth, Joel 1.8, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. 1 Kings 21.27, Ahab is told of the judgment that's going to come on him, and he begins to lament. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. He's not going about nude, he's going about in sackcloth. And so Micah likely stripped his outer garments. He may have used a loincloth. It probably would not have been of a very comfortable material. And he removed his sandals and his shoes. And he begins to go about the nation like that. Uh, Jack Riggs, the nakedness of which Micah spoke about for himself was probably not total, but instead involved the taking off of the outer cloak or tunic. And in fact, this phrase, barefoot and naked, is only mentioned twice. It's only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament, in all the descriptions of a lament. And it's symbolic of a coming captivity. By removing your clothing, your normal clothing, putting on sackcloth and removing your shoes, it's a picture of you being taken off into exile. Because when the invading army comes in, they take your fine clothes, they take all the nice stuff away from you, and you're left only with the uncomfortable sackcloth. One commentator said, only one other time is it said in the Old Testament that when one, one went barefoot and naked, and that of Isaiah, there it is unquestionably a symbolic act, signifying a threatening captivity. Exactly the same thing is met with here in Micah. And uh, Dale Ralph Davis, going stripped and naked may be associated with grief, but also fits the description of a captive of war who's being carted off to an unknown land. And so they look at Micah and they see not only the fact that he's mourning and lamenting, but when they look at Micah, what they think of is someone who's about to be carted off and taken off into exile. And for the nation of Israel, that should have been really meaningful because all the way back into the Mosaic law, God was telling them, if you don't obey my law, I'm going to kick you out of the land and you're going to be slaves to a foreign nation. Micah's routine includes being stripped down to his undergarments, and it also includes wailing. Notice it says wailing, not whimpering, sniveling, moaning, whining, groaning, or sobbing. It's wailing. This term actually refers to howling. Dale Ralph Davis again. His are not the quiet tears deemed appropriate in the West. His anguish is of the Near Eastern ear-splitting variety. He's dressed very oddly, he stands out that way, and then he's going to go around screaming and shrieking. And he says this in verse 8, he says, I must make a lament like the jackals. I don't know if this is going to work. I have a video with audio. I hope the audio comes through. Did you hear that? That was, those are jackals. And that's what Micah uses to describe his lament. The sound of a jackal. 
He illustrates it again by comparing his lament to an ostrich. Now, there's some debate here on what he means by an ostrich. There could, this could be a reference to the ostrich as you're thinking about the tall bird, Walter Kaiser. said the ostrich, on the other hand, is a two-toed, flightless runner, the largest of the birds, weighing around 300 pounds and standing six to eight feet tall. It exhibits both cruelty and uncleanness. It is easily frightened and stupid. Now, to be honest with you, since Judah was a nation full of sinners and we're all a bunch of sinners, we could rightly say that's a description of every group of sinners we've ever met. But this is not an illustration of a lament. The ostrich doesn't make any noise. It makes some noise, but it's certainly not a wailing. It's more of a groaning sound. Ostriches don't howl. But the eagle owl does. And I tried to find a good video with some sound to that, but I couldn't. But there is an eagle owl. It's a bird, and it's a rather large predatory bird that makes a howling sound. And at night, it would probably scare some people. In both cases, the jackal and the eagle owl inhabit waste places. They go into ruins. When there's an abandoned city, you'll go in there and you'll find the eagle owl and you'll find the jackals kind of roaming around that area. In Isaiah 13, you find this, speaking of the ruins of Babylon, Isaiah 13, 21, but desert creatures will lie there, go, uh, will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls, literally howling creatures. Ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. The ostrich there is a reference back to an owl that wails and makes loud noises, and is going to dwell in the abandoned cities. So here's the image that Micah wants you to get from his lament. He's in sackcloth. He's walking around in his underwear. He's got no shoes on his feet. He's screaming and shrieking, wailing. And now he's pictured as being in waste places. But in the waste places, he's not surrounded by animals. It's not like he went out into the forest and he's hanging out with the jackals. He's in his home country. His home country is the waste place. And he's surrounded by other Judeans in the ruins of what used to be his country. And because of that, he is weeping and wailing and mourning. That's his routine. Let's look at the second part of his pronouncement. His reason. Why is he doing this? Why is he going through all this drama? Why is he putting on this little play for us? It's not really a play, but... Verse 9. His reason. For her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Now, when I was looking at that, I was trying to figure out what is the wound. Her wound, her, refers back to the nation. What is the wound? Well, it's not the sin, it's not the rebellion he described in the first seven verses. The wound is the judgment of God that was inflicted upon Samaria. And he says that wound is incurable. There's no fix for it. You can't go back, you can't resolve it, you can't find a solution to it. There's not going to be a revival for the, nation, the northern kingdom. Samaria will never again be the capital 
The northern kingdom will not be restored. It is gone forever. And again, we saw that last week with the mound and a couple rocks next to it. The northern kingdom has been wiped out. And it will cease to exist. There's no cure. And again, his, his lament isn't just over Samaria. Notice in the verse, he says, For it has come to Judah. This is the heart of his lament. The same wound that went to Samaria is now coming to Judah. The same destruction that befell the city of Samaria is now headed to Jerusalem. Micah's country is going to be destroyed. Notice there he says, it has reached the gate of my people. That's a very, very important statement. The gate was the entrance to the city. Notice he does not say, the wound has gone through the gate. He doesn't say that the wound has gone past the gate. He says the wound comes up to the gate. It stops at the gate. Why is that important? Because it tells us what gate he's referring to. It's the gate even to Jerusalem. The wound is going to stop at the front gate of Jerusalem. The idea here is the rest of the nation is going to get wiped out, and all that remains is the city of Jerusalem, and it's going to stop there. Why is that important? Because it helps us figure out what judgment this is. Is he talking about the judgment by the Babylonians in 586? No, he can't be. Because in 586, the Babylonians wiped out Jerusalem too. Here, Jerusalem survives, so this cannot be the Babylonian judgment. This has to be another judgment. This is the judgment of Assyria that was brought in in 701 B.C. by King Sennacherib. Um, I have a map. Wow, that's really small. All right, well, that's okay. There's Jerusalem. Do you see the green dot? Can you guys see that? Or is that too small too? That might be too small. The blue dot is Moresheth of Gath. Who remembers what Moresheth of Gath is? Why is that relevant? Anybody? That's where Micah's from. That's, that's Micah's hometown, Moresheth of Gath. And the Assyrians are going to invade, and they're going to come from the north. They go in, they wipe out Tyre, they wipe out Sidon, and they follow the Phoenician coast down, and they come from the north, and they come into the nation. But they don't go directly to Jerusalem. They want to have a base of operations somewhere in the country, and so they come down into this region down here, where the circle is. This region is called the Shepla. It's a valley. Everything to the right of that circle and north is mountains and difficult terrain. If you wanted to go south to Egypt, you go through the Shepla. If you want to get north to Syria, you go through the Shepla. This is where all the agriculture happens. This is where the, the main body of economic activity occurs. And this is also the route that if you wanted to invade and take over Judah, this is where you go. You go through the Shepla. But I want you to notice something. What's right in the middle of that big circle? 
his hometown. Mike is going to give us a list of 11 cities. All of those cities are within a nine-mile radius of his hometown. Now, that circle isn't to scale because I'm not that good, but I just kind of guessed based on the cities that are located there. This is how you would control the nation. You go into the Shepla and take control there. Micah's hometown is central to defending the nation. And there are other cities in the region, like Lachish to the south, that was a key defensive point for the nation. And Assyria comes in, and the first thing Assyria does is he comes down here to the Shepla, to where all the fortified cities are, and he begins to take control of those. Um, Isaiah 36, verse 1. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Hezekiah was the king of Judah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. He goes into the Shepla and he begins to take over. And as I said, these are the cities in that circle. These are the cities that Micah is going to focus on. And every single city that he's going to give us is within nine miles of his home. The exact location of these cities is not what's important. We don't need to try to figure out where in that circle the city is located. That's not what Micah wants you to focus on. The prophecy of destruction includes his hometown. These cities are going to be destroyed, and that includes his hometown. For Micah, this was deeply personal. This is like you're going to be a prophet, and one of the cities that you're going to prophesy the destruction of is Bernie. Or if you live in San Antonio, you're going to prophesy the destruction of San Antonio. We spoke about his routine of laments, his wailing and howling. And some people might ask, well, why is he going to be so dramatic about it? I think he's going to be dramatic about it because Micah has to experience this judgment twice. He has to go through it twice. Why does he have to go through it twice? Look back at verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Notice anything there? I'm sorry? There's two cities. He has to experience his judgment on his hometown twice. Notice what's in this book is a prophecy of what he saw. God gave him a vision of this coming judgment. What was in uh, the, the verb there? He saw refers to seeing with your eyes. There's some commentators who want to try to say this wasn't an actual vision. No, it, that's what the word means. He saw it with his eyes. What was included in that vision? Just a couple of questions that might come up. Did he see his childhood home destroyed? Did he watch his friends and family die in that vision? Did he watch the people he knew and loved be carried off into exile? If you were in his shoes and the cities were San Antonio, Bernie, Comfort, and Kerrville, and you watched it in a vision, wouldn't you lament, howl, and wail? And not only did he have to watch the vision, he then had to watch it unfold when it actually happened. I heard people say, I'd love to be an Old Testament prophet. No, you wouldn't. 
And the pain in Micah's heart might be evidence in his writing. If you read through the book of Micah, you'll notice that it's, the grammar's kind of weird at times. Actually, this is one of the most difficult passages to translate because the grammar, the Hebrew grammar, is so disjointed. It has statements that are really hard to translate. Kind of like when somebody's crying their eyes out and they're trying to talk at the same time. Have you ever tried to listen to someone like that and it's really hard to understand? So Micah's going to use these 11 cities in here, and he's going to paint some pictures. This is our second facet of Micah's lament, the prophet's pictures. Eleven pictures. Some of these I'm going to have more detail on others, but for the sake of time, we're not going to have a lot of detail on all of them, because there's eleven of them. And he's going to use words to illustrate this judgment, and sometimes he's going to use a play on words. He's going to take the meaning of the, of the word of the city, whatever the city's name is, and he's going to use a play on that. Sometimes he's just going to take the city and he's going to use a word that sounds very much like the name and he's going to make a, a play on that. And sometimes he's just going to use a pun. He's going to use some word pictures. Uh, one author gave this example using towns in Scotland. This will give you an idea of what Mike is doing. Creef will know grief, forfar will forfeit, crail will be frail, wick will be burned, storn away will be blown away, Edinburgh will be no Eden, for tain there will only be pain. Now if you could read Hebrew, that's something of what Micah is doing. And in a more Puritan way, Gary Smith, or in a more American way, Watertown will be covered with water, Washington will be washed away, and Waterloo will meet its Waterloo. So what are these pictures? The first one is the city of Gath. No gabbing in Gath. No gabbing in Gath. Micah was willing to weep and to wail and to make all sorts of noise and attract attention to himself because he wanted his countrymen to know what was coming. But he didn't want everyone to know what was coming, especially the people in Gath. Why would he not want the people in Gath to know about the judgment? They were Philistines. Those were the long-held enemies of Israel. And he tells them in verse 10, Tell it not in Gath. This is the capital of Philistia. They're their sworn enemies. These are the people David was fighting all that time. And his opening statement here, Tell it not in Gath, is actually a quote. You know who it's a quote from? It's a quote from David. This is what David said when he was lamenting the death of Saul and Jonathan. In uh, 2 Samuel 1, verse 20, he says, Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. Look, if you go and tell them this judgment is coming on Judah, they're going to be happy about it. They're going to be rejoicing at your destruction. Don't go tell them that. Say nothing to them. This judgment is going to be humiliating. We don't need our enemies laughing at us while we're being humiliated. Don't tell them. I think there's another reason. I saw the map up there. Gath was probably going to get hit by the Assyrians too. Don't speak about it in Gath. Not only don't speak about it, he says, don't weep. 
Don't even cry in their presence. And the, the statement there is emphatic. If you translate it in a wooden way, it says, Weeping, do not weep. I expect you to weep. Just don't do it in Gath. Don't let them know you're upset. That's the first picture. No gabbing in Gath. You know, in the Navy, they told us loose lips sink ships. That's Micah's message. Okay, what's the prophet's second picture? Go roll in the dust, dust town. Go roll in the dust, dust town. This is out of verse 10 again. At Beth Laophra, roll yourself in the dust. Rolling in the dust is a sign of grief and mourning. When Israel coming out of Egypt was defeated by Ai, that little tiny country that they should have wiped out easily, they didn't even send their entire army after them, and they fled in front of them. Joshua and the elders covered themselves in dust. Joshua 7, verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Jerusalem was commanded to cover themselves in dust. Jeremiah 6, verse 26, Jeremiah 6, 26, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn as for an only son, a lamentation most bitter, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. Rolling in ashes would be the same idea as rolling in dust. And now Micah instructs this little town, Bethlehem, to do the same thing. Go roll in the dust. Go cover yourself in dust. You know why that's kind of humorous? You know why that's a pun? Beth la Afra. Beth is the word house. Afra is dust. It's the house of dust. That's the name of the city, house of dust. And he tells the people living in the house of dust, go roll in the dust. Your destruction is coming. Your, your city is going to go the way of dust. It's going to get wiped out. He has an interesting way of giving prophecy, doesn't he? That's the second picture. Third picture. Degrading beauty town. Degrading beauty town. This is out of verse 11. He says, Go on your way, inhabitant of Shafir, in shameful nakedness. The name Shafir, if you were to translate that into English, would just be beautiful. And I want you to think about the things, just use things that are beautiful. Let's say you have a piece of beautiful art. Someone painted it. And you think it's very beautiful. How are you going to treat that piece of art? Are you just going to take it home and kind of throw it across the room and let it fall on the floor and the kids walk all over it? You're going to treat it carefully. This city called Beautiful is not going to be treated that way. They're going to be led away. They're going to be taken captive. And they're going to be treated in a very shameful manner. All their fine clothing and their expensive jewelry will be stripped away from them. And it's going to be replaced with sackcloth, chains, and shackles. And they're going to be led away as prisoners of war. In disgrace. In humiliation. That's what he says, shameful nakedness. This is going to be a humiliating experience. There's a lot of adjectives that you could use to describe them at that point. 
beautiful will not be one of them. Jack Riggs says the city of beauty would thereby become the naked city. If you think back to the Old Testament and back into Genesis, Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they were ashamed. The city of Shafira, the beautiful city, is going to be degraded and humiliated. Prophet's fourth picture. By the way, if you guys have questions, please stop me. Fourth picture. Za'anan, the town of Za'anan. Go out town won't go out. The go out town won't go out. This again is out of verse 11. It's the second part of verse 11. The inhabitant of Za'anan does not escape. The Hebrew word here for escape is a verb. And it literally refers to just going out. Escaping and leaving. The LSB actually translates it this way. The inhabitant of Za'anan does not go out. I think they have a better translation there. The verb to go out and the name of Za'anan have the same root. So if you read them in Hebrew, they kind of sound the same. So you could say Za'anan could be translated as go out town. Same root. And Micah says the inhabitants of go out town won't go out. When the judgment comes, when the Assyrians make it in, the inhabitants of Za'anan are going to stay behind their walls. They're not going to go out to fight. They're not going to go out to defend the country. They're not even going to go out to try to defend their city. They have no desire to face the enemy. They won't even try to run away. They're just going to sit there and wait, hoping someone's going to come and help them. But they'll wait in vain because the Assyrians will come in and they'll get into the city and just take them out that way. But go out town will not go out. Fifth, Beth Ezel, takeaway town, taken away. This again is the last part, I believe, of verse 11. The lamentation of Beth Ezel, he will take from you its support. This is a lamentation. It's the lamentation of the, the city, just like we're reading about Micah's lamentation. Beth Ezel, translated literally, the house of taking away. The house of taking away. And Micah gives their lament. Their lament is that line that should have two quotation marks. He will take from you its support. And to be perfectly honest with you, that line is very difficult to understand and it's difficult to translate. It can have a couple of different ways you can take it. You can say it, he will take away from you its support. He will take away from you his support. And then you can do the same transition and say support or place. And so depending on who you read, they'll come up with different theories. Support or standing. I think the best way to understand that is 
the city's position within the country, its position under the king Hezekiah. It had a place in Judah. It had a position in the country. It was a part of the country, and that place is going to go away. It will cease to exist. It will no longer be a city of Judah. It will no longer be a city under the king of Judah. And um, it was taken away. It was taken away so well that we don't know where the city was. This is one of the three cities that we cannot find. Prophet 6 picture. Maroth. Bitter town. Disappointed. This is out of verse 12. Bitter town is disappointed. Verse 12. For the inhabitant of Maroth becomes weak, waiting for good. Because a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. The word Maroth here refers to bitterness. And this city, we can call it Bitter Town. I think someone else had a better name for it. It was Bitter Tin. I thought that sounded better, but Bitter Town is waiting for good. The judgment is coming, Assyria is coming, and they're waiting. And the term for waiting here refers to anxiously waiting. You might say writhing. They're uncomfortable. They're expecting some good to come. They're expecting to be delivered from the judgment. They're expecting to find some kind of relief. Either they're expecting it from God and the divine intervention, or they're expecting it from another nation, or they're expecting it from other, some other city in the nation to come and help them, to save them. But that relief never comes. Instead, look at the end of the verse, because a calamity has come down from the Lord. Calamity. You could translate this as evil or bad. And here it's not being used in a, in a, a moral sense. Here it's just referring to harm. Harm has come from the Lord in Isaiah 45, verse 7. It says of God, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these. Notice how calamity and well-being are put in parallel to each other. They're opposites of one another. This is not accusing God of sin, but it is saying that if something bad happens, it's because God ordained it. If destruction comes upon a nation, it's God-ordained. And that's what he says here in Micah. Micah 1, verse 12, "...because calamity has come from the Lord." The destruction that's coming upon the Judah, all the, the consequences of this destruction are from Yahweh. He has ordained this, He has orchestrated this, He has planned it, He has organized it, and He is empowering it. It is His righteous response to the sin of Judah. But if Yahweh has no intention of helping Maroth, if Yahweh has no intention of bringing them good, who's going to? If God wants them to be destroyed, there's no one who's going to be able to stop it. And it's not just these little towns that calamity is, calamity is coming for. It's coming all the way to the gate of Jerusalem. The entire nation is going to experience this calamity. And even the inhabitants of Jerusalem, while they will not end up getting deported and exiled here, 
the consequence of the entire nation getting wiped out except for that one little city, you're going to feel that for a long time. And Judah was never the same after. Isaiah spoke of this judgment. And he said it came from the Lord. It came from Yahweh. Isaiah 10 this is a famous passage. Isaiah 10, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Assyria is the stick that God is going to use to beat Judah. This invasion is planned and purposed by God. Verse 6, I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty, to seize plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets. I just want to note, he calls Jerusalem godless. And he doesn't say they're my people. He says they're the people of what? My fury. He's disowned them in a sense. God intended Assyria to be a form of judgment and divine discipline. But Assyria had no intention of doing what God wanted. Assyria's plan was, we're just here to seize power. We're just here to take over. And he actually says that. Isaiah 10, 9. For it, Assyria says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Or Hamath like Arpad? Or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? The king's like, look, I already took out Samaria. And the God of Israel didn't stop me. I'm going to do the same thing to Jerusalem. This is King Sennacherib, by the way. But even though he's fulfilling his desire, he's also doing what God ultimately desired for him to do. He's fulfilling God's desire. Good is not coming. What's headed for this little city is calamity and destruction. And it's coming even to the gate of Jerusalem. You know, you can actually go back into history and find Sennacherib's writings. You want to know what he said about this? About his invasion? He was really proud of himself, by the way. Here's what he said. Sennacherib. As to Hezekiah, the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts into the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped ramps. That would be dirt ramps. Battering rams brought near, combined with the attack by foot soldiers, mines, breaches, as well as sapper work. I drove them out, 200,000 130 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle, beyond counting, and considered them booty. Sennacherib thought, man, I am such an awesome king. Look at what I've pulled off. And in fact, in the later part of Isaiah 10, you can go back and read it, and he says, I will judge that king for his haughtiness and for the arrogance in which he did it. Assyria was an instrument of calamity, not for goodness. Bittertown is disappointed. Prophet's seventh picture is from Lachish. Horses of retreat. Horses of retreat. This is out of verse 13. He says, Harness the chariot to the team of horses, O inhabitant of Lachish. Lachish was an extremely important city. It guarded the southern border 
of Judah. It was a military town. It's kind of like San Antonio. It's a military town known for its strong fortifications. It was one of those cities built by Solomon. Solomon was storing up horses and chariots, and so they built the city, and Solomon sent his horses there. It was fortified by Rehoboam in 2 Chronicles 11, and then later enlarged by King Hezekiah. Dale Ralph Davis, Lachish guarded important access routes into the interior of the land. It was heavily fortified. During the divided kingdom, it had double defensive walls, one 19 feet thick, the other 13. You wanted to get in Lachish, you had to go through over 20 feet of stone. And while you're doing that, you've got guys trying to throw stuff at you and shoot you with arrows. It's a hard little city to get into. And when Sennacherib conquered it, he thought it was a great accomplishment. He conquers the city of Lachish, and then he makes the city of Lachish his home base and his base of operations. And if you read through the prophets in Second Chronicles, you find that he actually sent his messengers to Jerusalem from the city of Lachish. And it was from Lachish he sent his army to Jerusalem. And when he finally got home, in his humility, he built a relief, a memorial to his victory at Lachish. It was a small little relief. It was um, 70 feet long. Really proud of himself for defeating this little town. And Micah says to this little military town, he says, harness teams of horses to chariots. He doesn't use the normal term that you would use for a, a war horse, which is the Hebrew word sus. Instead, he uses the term la rakesh. La rakesh. Here's the play on words. To Lakish, he says, La Rakesh. To Lakish, he says, La Rakesh. La Rakesh refers to what we would call a racing horse today. These are horses that are used in the book of Esther. When you wanted to get a message out really quick, you put it on one of these horses that are really fast. Esther 8.10, he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. These are racing horses. These are horses that are trained to get to a location really, really, really quick. They're not war horses. Harness, that, that word there, in uh, Michael 1.13, harness describes harnessing a group of two or four horses to one chariot. The pun here is not just in the sound. The purpose of harnessing these powerful horses to chariots was not so that they go into battle. If you wanted to go into battle, you would have used a different kind of horse. These horses are meant to run away. To get away from the battle. I don't want to go into battle, so I'm going to get the fastest horse I can find and I'm going to take off. The strong military town, the, the place that was supposed to be the great defense of the nation that Hezekiah and other kings put all their hope and trust in, they're just going to run in battle and flee. Then he says, She, speaking of Lachish, was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, because in you were found the rebellious acts of Israel. There is some debate here. She refers back to Lachish. The city of Lachish was... Micah says, was the epicenter, the focal point, the starting point of Judah's fall into sin. sin. The sin began there, the rebellion against Yahweh began there and spread. 
from Lachish. And the debate here is, what is this sin to the daughter of Zion? What is, what is he referring to? There are two options here. The first we saw last week is idolatry. That was certainly true in Judah. Judah was just as idolatrous as Samaria. I, I don't think that's what he's referring to. And the reason I don't think that is because the context is not on idolatry or worship. The context here is on the military, on conquest. And that's the second possibility, which is the sin here, the sin of Zion is trusting in military might and strength rather than trusting in Yahweh. I've got all these horses, I've got this really large army, I've got these really thick walls, we're going to be good to go. I can trust in this, and Assyria won't be able to get in. And in fact, later in Micah, Micah 5, verse 10, it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. Even the prophet Hosea, he was speaking to Samaria, but even the prophet Hosea warned them against this. He says, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your way and your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people, and all your fortresses will be destroyed. Stop trusting in military might. Number eight, Morsheth of Gath, Micah's hometown, parting gifts from parting town. This is out of verse 14, parting gifts from parting town. Morsheth is roughly six miles from Lachish. Morsheth sounds very similar to the word for parting gift. You see the word parting gifts? The Hebrew word there is morashah. Morsheth will give morashah. Morashah refers to gifts given when you say goodbye, kind of like a dowry. A father gives his daughter to a husband, and he turns her over to him, and he gives him a gift as he says goodbye to his daughter. We don't have time to look at it, but 1 Kings 9, 16, the same idea. King of Egypt gave a dowry, a, a parting gift. And in Micah 1, verse 14, he says this. He says, Therefore you, Lachish, will give parting gifts on behalf of Morsheth. Morsheth of Gath, Micah's hometown, is going to go away. And it's going to go away so quickly, they won't even be able to say goodbye. So Lachish is going to say goodbye for you. Because you're not going to have time to send a gift. Prophet's ninth picture is Akzib, true house of deception. It's out of verse 14. The houses of Akzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Akzib, the actual name here, means to deceive. Micah says, Akzib, deceive, will become a deception to the kings of Israel. That last phrase has some people scratching their heads. How are they going to become a deception? Who are the kings of Israel? Is he talking about the kings of Samaria, the kings of Judah? Is he talking about the whole nation as a whole? I think the context would isolate the kings of Israel primarily to the southern kingdom. Why? Because this passage, the lament, is primarily for Judah. And Judah is being mentioned here. Secondly, by the time this judgment happens, Samaria has been gone for over 20 years. Samaria is not around. So how, how are they going to become a deception to the kings of Samaria? 
The city of Oxib was actually an economic powerhouse. It was a powerhouse because they did a lot of manufacturing. They had a whole bunch of little shops in there that produced things, and they could sell them. It was a great source of revenue for the king. And when Assyria comes, they're going to wipe them out. And the kings of Israel are going to find out that that steady source of income isn't trustworthy. I can't trust it because it's going to go away. Number 10, Marashah, the conqueror, is conquered. Out of verse 15, Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Marashah. Marashah, by the way, this is Yahweh speaking. The one who takes possession, that phrase, the one who takes possession, is really one word. It's Yaresh. Yaresh. Yaresh refers to a conqueror. And it sounds very much like Ma-Resh-Shah. Ma-Resh-Shah. Do you hear it? Ma-Resh and Yaresh. Here's what he's saying. The town of conquerors will be conquered. As strong as you think you are, as big as you think you are, you're going away. You're going to be conquered. And the conqueror is going to come and they're going to take possession of you. And you're going to be carried away into exile. Uh, the 11th one, the last one, hiding glory. Hiding glory. This is out of verse 15. The glory of Israel will enter Adullam. Glory of Israel refers to the leading men, the rulers, the rich, the powerful, the ones that should be out leading the fight, the ones that should be out defeating the Assyrians. And this isn't a play on words. This is the historical context of the town of Adullam. Anybody remember Adullam? Yes. It's where David went and fled and hid. 1 Samuel 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there with him. Here's Micah's point. Just like David fled and hid in a cave... Your leading men, your valiant warriors, the people that should lead you into battle, they're going to run and hide. And they're going to leave you out to dry. These 11 pictures, Micah paints a very graphic picture of the destruction that's coming upon the cities of Judah. It was a destruction that he saw in a vision, that that vision brought him to his knees and caused him to lament and wail and cry out. And he wasn't wailing for himself or crying for himself. He was crying for his nation, his family, his friends, his neighbors, his fellow countrymen. And it results in his final one, the final facet of his lament. The prophet's plea. The prophet's plea. This is in verse 16. He says, Make yourself bold and cut off your hair. Because of the children of your delight, extend your boldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. Make yourself bald. Cut off your hair. And he illustrates that later. He says, extend your baldness like the eagle. The eagle here is the griffin vulture. He has no feathers on his head. So he looks bald from a distance. He's not actually bald. He's got hair up there. But he looks bald from a distance. And Micah says, extend your baldness like the griffin vulture. Cut all your hair off. Show your grieving. Show your mourning. Isaiah 22, we don't have time. He says the same thing. God has called you to weeping and to wailing, to shaving the head and wearing sackcloth. Same thing in Jeremiah 7, 29. This would have made you stick out like a sore thumb and have 
culture where everybody had hair. But who is this addressed to? Who is supposed to shave their head? The key phrase here, verse 16, because of the children of your delight. Like Hosea, Micah cast Jerusalem as a parent. Jerusalem is the parent, and all these little cities are the children. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to be spared the judgment, but they should still mourn because the children, all these little cities, are going to be wiped out. They're going to be destroyed. Why should they mourn? Why should they join Micah in mourning? Because it's only when you're able and willing to mourn over your sin that you're actually going to be willing to change what you're doing. If he can't break through the hardness of heart to get them to recognize the danger and the destruction that their sin is going to bring, he's never going to get them to change their behavior. They're never going to repent from it. I'm out of time. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for men like Micah who uh, were faithful, who endured great pain and suffering and sorrow and grieving. We thank you that you have given us this example, that you are just and righteous, that you bring judgment on sinners so that we could learn from it, as Paul says, that we should learn from these things, that we would not follow in the same path and the same footsteps as they did, that we would turn from our sin, that we would weep and mourn and turn to Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.